take your Bible, open it up, or turn your smart device on and get into your Bible app with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. So we're going to spend a few minutes thinking through this idea this morning, dealing with doubt. Of course, last week we talked about faith versus fear, but uh, we want to think now of faith versus doubt, and especially how God's faithfulness makes an impact in that experience that we have as we seek to live our lives following God. We, I think we all would recognize the necessity of faith. We all would readily admit that we have a call from God to be faithful. In all likelihood, you have a desire in your life to be faithful as you follow God. Yet at the same time, we also recognize that one of the challenges that we face as we go through our journey of following Jesus is the opposite of faith. It is, in fact, doubt, that we struggle with faith and doubt, that those two things would seem to be in constant opposition to each other. Doubt is an experience that everyone has. Everyone deals with doubt. We all have those doubts, and especially of all years in this year, we seem to have doubts that are multiplied. Why did God do this? Or why did God allow that? Or why did God not intervene in this situation? Why did God not do fill in the blank? And sometimes, just to be honest, sometimes that gets frustrating. I mean, you, you do all the things that you think you're supposed to do but God did not come through like you thought he would come through. I mean, you tried to be obedient, but you did not get the job. You tried to be faithful, but the cancer screening came back positive. You sought to pray and read your Bible and be faithful <coughs> to God, but you weren't able to leave the hospital with your loved one. Or you've looked around at the situations that are face, facing our country and our world, and you, you think, you know, God, I don't mean to criticize, but some of the things that I see, uh, I don't know that that makes sense that it would come from the hand of a, of a loving God if God was in control. The, the universal reward system, it seems all out of whack. I mean, over here you've got the wicked, and I'm making sure I'm not, well, I'm pointing to orchestra. Over here, you've got the wicked folk that, that are doing things that, that they ought not be doing, and they seem to be prospering. And then in another area, you've got the righteous people who are trying to do good, but they seem like they keep running up against wall after wall after wall. And you begin to have a doubt. You begin to wonder is God really, I mean, I know the Sunday school answer is to say he's in control, but do I really believe that God is in control? As with anything else in our lives, God can use our experience with doubt to move us forward. 
You see, doubt, I've heard it expressed best this way, it's like a foot that is poised to go forward or backward. It can cause you to take a step back into disbelief, but you will never take a step forward unless you have that foot of faith moving forward. If you're going to move forward in your relationship with Christ and following Christ, it takes that foot of faith moving forward. So our goal today is to look at Psalm 73 and to see how God can use faith to help us fight doubt as we deal with it in our lives. This is a psalm written by a man named Asaph, and you're going to see his struggle as we move along. Psalm 73, let's begin in verse 1. Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's what he's thinking. The next verse is what he's feeling. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I almost fell off the cliff. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph admits that his doubt began with envy. He was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. You know what envy is? Envy is when we want someone else's life. We want their opportunities to be ours, their talents to be ours, their possessions to be ours. And this psalm clearly defines envy for what it is. It is envy that will cause us to doubt the goodness of God. Envy is the horizontal expression of a vertical problem. Okay, When we begin to envy what other people have, that seems like that's a, a me and you problem, but that's just the expression of a me and God problem because when I begin to envy, I begin to doubt that God is good to me. And every doubt that we experience stems back to do we really believe in the goodness of God to his people. In fact, envy is such a prevalent sin that in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were that that perfect Garden of Eden did not seem good enough. Remember that Adam and Eve are literally in a literal perfect place, yet they concluded that God was withholding something from them. They looked at all those trees and they said, yeah, we can eat all of these trees here, but that one tree, that, that's where it's at. That one tree, that's where all the good stuff is. And they began to desire that which God God knew they did not need. That's the same way it operates in our hearts. Envy has nothing to do with the condition of our circumstances. It has everything to do with the condition of our hearts. And Asaph is dealing with this envy that's causing him to doubt the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And to make matters worse, it's not the choir that he's envious of. It's not the committees in the church he's envious. It's not the deacons. He's envious of the wicked people. The people who should not, in his mind, have things go so well all the time. The social elites of his day, he's envious. So we get to verse 4. For they, the wicked, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat. I started to self-identify with Psalm 73 right here. 
But when he says their bodies are fat and sleek, he's meaning they've got enough to eat. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They oppressed people. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. The wicked that Asaph is describing in these verses, they believe that every good thing in their lives is in their life as a result of their effort and their doing. They have divorced God from his involvement in the good things in their lives. Now I know that right now we're wanting to join Asaph and get our pitchforks out and take it to the wicked, but before we become too self-righteous, can we at least admit this morning that we have the temptation to become like this as well. You see, when you are blessed with good things, you are tempted to assume that it's primarily because of what you have done. The natural inclination of your heart when something good happens is to pat yourself on the back and look inward instead of upward. I'm not saying you don't look upward. I'm saying the natural inclination is to look inward. The natural inclination is to say, look at what I have done. I mean, how natural is it for our first instinct to be to gaze up to the God in heaven and thank Him for the good things that He sent to our lives, realizing it all came to Him as a gift. Similarly, think about this. When you are doing well, aren't we tempted, like the wicked people that Asaph envied, to forget our need of God? How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High God? Think about your prayer, your prayer life. Now, I'm not talking about when you sit down at a table. You need to, you need to have a, a prayer of thanksgiving over your food. You really need to pray for God to bless the cheeseburger and the cheese sticks and, and all the grease that he's somehow going to turn into protein that you're about to eat, all right? I'm just talking about those deep moments of prayer. When you yearn to connect with God in prayer, don't answer out loud, but think about this. Do those most often happen when things are going good or when things are going bad? You see, when things are going good, we are less likely to cry out to God and to show our dependence upon Him. Let's be honest, when things are going good, we become self-dependent. But then when things go south, then all of a sudden we want to connect with God deeply and passionately. Because our natural inclination is to do just as these wicked have done. Let's not get too high and mighty. This is indeed what the wicked are like, but it's what our hearts are like as well. In verse 13, Asaph says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean 
Man, this is, doubt. this is deep doubt right here. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. All this stuff I've done for God, all my efforts to obey Him, all the ways I have trusted Him, I haven't seen a tangible outcome of that. I've been keeping my commitment to tithe, but I still am facing financial stress. I attended the marriage conference not only once but twice, all three days of it, but we're still arguing and we're still fighting. I've read the parenting books, but my kids still rebelled and they still resist authority. Maybe all this stuff about God that I've been believing isn't true after all. Asaph is at a critical now he's a worship leader too, okay? He's just not some guy that shows up to church one day a year. He's a worship leader and he's at this point of deep doubt in what it means. See, you need to realize that too. Godly people can doubt. I mean, the disciples doubted. There was even a disciple that followed Jesus. We call him now Doubting Thomas. There's a guy in my hometown called Drinking Thomas, but that's a different story altogether. (laughs) Different context. But we all struggle with this idea of that. And Asaph is really burdened with it. In fact, he says in verse 15, If I had said I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What he means, I believe, there is in verse 15, there was something about verbalizing his doubts that caused him to stop and go, wait a minute. What I'm feeling is not in line with what I know to be true about God. And that is where faith and doubt collide. It's when what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, does not line up with what you know to be true about God. And so Asaph is going to try something. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand it, when I wanted to figure this out, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You ever had that struggle and you just are like tired? of the struggle of that, that you're just like, God, will you, you come on, something's got to give. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Asaph went into the presence of God, and what happened, and I'll show you for the verse in just a minute. When he got to the presence of God, God taught him two things that he was able to use as his faith and his doubt fought against each other. All right, number one is this. Life is temporary, but eternity is forever. Okay, this is a truth that when we begin to grasp it and we believe it and we live as if it's true, it will help us engage our faith, engage our doubt. That life is temporary, but eternity is forever. The things that cause us to doubt the goodness of God are temporary. The fact that our faith will be made whole is eternal. Look at what he said in verses 18 through 20. He's speaking of the wicked, and Asaph says, Truly you set the wicked in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. 
how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Notice how in verse 20, Asaph likens life to a dream. When you have a dream, you ever had those dreams and they seemed so real and it seemed like it was a dream that covered days and weeks of your life and then you wake up and you realize you've been asleep 10 minutes and the dream was nothing more than of a, than a mirage. There was nothing of substance to it. Asaph is saying, for those who were outside God's kingdom, their life is like a dream. Death will be like a sudden awakening from this illusion of success and power. They will wake up as they would a dream, and spiritually, it's all over. Conversely, Conversely, for the believer, all the pain and all the struggles that we go through, those are going to seem meaningless compared to the joy we experience our first second into eternity. This is why Paul said in Romans chapter 8, for I considered our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you realize how short life is? Do you realize that life, to use language that James would use in James chapter 4, that life is like a, a vapor? That it is the, the fog that appears on the mirror in the morning. It's there for a minute, and then it is gone. The dream is going to be over soon. And I want to ask you this morning, are you prepared to awaken to eternity? Are you prepared for that dream to cease? Because life is temporary, but eternity is forever. Believer, you may not see it now, but all the pain and difficulty you're experiencing is just temporary, and one day it will soon be no more. For the believer, the brief pain of this world is the closest to hell that you will ever come. For the unbeliever, the brief pleasure of this world is the closest to heaven that you'll, that you'll ever come. And it's only when you learn the brevity of life that you'll learn to live in faith today. You see, a lot of the doubts that we have, doubts about the goodness of God, are predicated upon the assumption that life is long and permanent, but it's not. Life is short. And when you realize how temporary life is, a lot of those doubts will dissipate just like that morning mist. When you realize that whatever your experience is today, it is a blip in God's radar of eternity. Life is temporary. Eternity is forever. Here's the second truth. When you have Jesus... You have enough. Four people agree with me. That was a wonderful spot for an amen. <laughs> totally missed it. Don't worry, there'll be a couple more spots as we move through this point. 
Asaph realized the focus of his faith wasn't right. In fact, look at what he says about himself in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me with the right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. He said back in verse 22, I was like a beast towards you. Animals generally are not interested in you for you. They're interested in what you will do for them, especially cats. My goodness, cats. (laughs) They believe they were put on this earth for it to revolve around them. That's why I have negative one. You don't want to know how I got to negative one. Even animals, they're always, I'll get cat lover emails all week, I know, that's fine. (laughs) Animals, they they want what you can do for them. And that's what Asaph is saying. He was like a beast. He wasn't wanting God for God. He didn't want God because God was beautiful. He wanted God because of what he thought God could do for him. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Don't miss what Asaph is saying. Asaph has now come to a point of faith where his faith is greater than his doubt, and Asaph has realized that God is enough. Asaph says, the riches I want, the riches I need, they are you. What makes heaven heaven is you, and I've already got you here on earth, which means I already have the best part of heaven in my heart, even if I'm not fully in your presence. Look, the secret to joy in the Christian life as your faith encounters doubt is knowing and believing this. Jesus is always with us, and Jesus is better than anything this life can give us, and Jesus is better than anything death can take away from us. He's better than all of that. So that when I have Jesus, I have enough. When you believe that Jesus is better than anything else that life can give you, you look at life differently. When we believe that God is good, even when we can't see His plan, even when He doesn't do what we expect, when we believe that His plan is good, that changes everything. You know why Asaph, don't miss this, you know why Asaph believes he can trust God? Because of one word. It's in verse 23. The word nevertheless. Some translations will say yet. Asaph says, I acted beastly towards him. Nevertheless, he did not leave me. I I didn't trust him. Nevertheless, he did not leave forsake me. I put a nail through his hand. Nevertheless, he kept 
holding on to me. God's love for us is so great that he would rather go to the cross and be humiliated and tortured and die instead of losing us. That's how great his love is for us, and that makes him more desirable than anything else on this earth. Where else could you find a love like that? Where else could you find a love like that on earth or in heaven? Who have we in heaven but him? He really is better than anything else life could ever give us. He really is more secure than anything death could ever take away from us. Look at his conclusion in verses 27, 28. For behold, those who were far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, <laughs> but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. If not Jesus, then who? Where else are you going to turn? I'm reminded of a conversation Jesus had with his disciples in John chapter 6. And Jesus had just finished giving some pretty difficult callings to leave it all to follow him. He had made some pretty difficult statements and many of those who followed him because they wanted something from him realized that they didn't want to follow him if it meant they couldn't get what they wanted. And so they stopped following. And Jesus looked at his disciples. And Jesus said, will you too leave and go away? And Simon Peter, who more often than not had his foot in his mouth, that's why I like him so much. I think his middle name was Jonathan. Simon Peter nailed it. He said, Lord, where else would we go? Who else would we turn to? There's no one else like you. You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else we can turn. Listen, walking with God and trusting Him can be difficult, but walking away from God is infinitely harder. You know why? You've got nowhere else to turn. You've got nowhere else to turn. So if you're going to have to turn to somebody, why not turn to Jesus? If you're going to put your faith in something or someone, why not put your faith in Jesus? For you see, a day is coming in which every single person will die. And as Asaph reminds us, those who are far from God shall perish. Because after death there is judgment. Are you prepared to die? Because I can tell you this truth. Until you're prepared to die, you are not prepared to live. Are you prepared to stand before God? Because in my case, it's good for me to be near God. Not because I'm good, but because He is. 
It's good for me to be near God, not because I died for my sins, but because He did. It's good for me to be near God because Jesus lived the life I could not live and died the death I should have died. And when you have Jesus, you have enough. This is my question to you this morning. To whom have you turned? Where are you anchoring your faith? And there may be a multitude of answers that we receive from that question, but there's only one sufficient one, and his name is Jesus. If there's never been a time in your life when you've placed your faith in Jesus, then why not today? Why not today? Why not today, right where you are, do business with God? Confess your sins. Repent of those sins and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. If there are questions you have about that, if there are things that you want to talk about uh, regarding that, our church staff, I would love the chance to talk with you about those. When you leave here this morning, you walk out these doors, look to your right, I'll be there behind a desk that says next step. And if your next step is the step of faith, then let's talk about it. But what about you, believer? As we deal with doubt, will you allow faith to come to the forefront? But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Are you telling the world about the works of Jesus? As we prepare to end our time, of worship here today. To our guests, it's been an honor to have you here, and we hope that you'll come back and worship with us again. To home folk, it's always good to, to, to come and to worship with you. But if there's a next step that you need to take that might be a step of salvation, a step of baptism, a step of church membership, whatever that step is, you can indicate that step on the yellow card that's in the pew in front of you. You can drop that in the receptacle as you leave today. To our members, if you brought your offering, you can drop your offering in that receptacle as you leave today. Whatever God's leading you to do, we desire for you to simply be faithful to Him. This time.